right. If you have your Bible, please turn again to Isaiah 6. That's where we were last week and where we will be again today. So we are in our summer series, which is how the major prophets point to Jesus. We're taking some time this summer. Uh, We had just finished the Acts series, and so now we're taking some time to kind of take a quick walk, not even trying to pretend we're covering anything close to everything in these books. A quick walk through the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So we're doing overviews of each book along with some representative texts from each one to help us kind of catch how Jesus is there and to help each of us with our own Bible reading. And it's been really encouraging to hear from some of you who are like, hey, this is what we're doing now for our family Bible reading, or this is what I'm doing for my personal Bible reading. I'm working through the major prophets. And that's so encouraging as, because that's one of our goals is to help us as we read our Bible. Because these are some of the ones where we get there and we're like, mm, I don't know. The basket of figs, I just don't know what that means. The boiling pot, what's going on? And you're like, why did he have to lie on the one side for 390 days? Like, I just, I just don't get where this is going. So this is one part of the Bible where there are some exciting stories. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's great when Daniel in the lion's den and all that kind of stuff. And we'll get there, too, by the end of the summer. But there's a lot in here that's, that's difficult, too. And so we want to be able to see how is all of this moving toward the salvation that God brings through the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, through Jesus. So that's what we're doing this summer, and we'll be in Isaiah 6 again today as we continue to consider how the book of Isaiah points to Jesus, and Sam is going to come and read the text for us this morning. Isaiah 6, 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. 
Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you showed yourself to Isaiah. We thank you that in your providence, in your plan, it was recorded for us, the vision that he had, along with the commission that he was given. And so we ask you to help us as we consider it today to see what you want us to see, to get out of it what is in there, what you want us to get. And that we would see how this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and the plan to save the nations through him. And so God, would you help us? Would you change us as we see you into the people that you want us to be? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll use the same big idea because we're just continuing to work through it. So, kids, it'll all be underlined again, and you can write it all down again if you want, because probably your notes might have been turned into a paper airplane between last Sunday and this Sunday. I don't know. Maybe you have a perfect file of them, and you're going to present them all to your parents at the end of the summer. That'll be super cool, too. We looked at much of this text last Sunday, so I'm not going to re-preach last Sunday's sermon. That's why we stopped it, and then we're going to keep going. But we will do some reminding of what's going on. So the big idea is this. When we see the true king in his glory, we are crushed, cleansed, and commissioned. And we started by looking at a question, considering a question. Why is Isaiah's call here in Isaiah 6? Because for Jeremiah, we'll see it in chapter 1. For Ezekiel, we'll see it in chapters 1 and chapter 2. So why is it so long? And scholars tell us that Isaiah 6 is the answer to Isaiah 1 to 5. It's not that it's what, just what happened next and Isaiah was a prophet for years without actually having a call from the Lord. It's not that. It's that the problems that we see that seem to have no solution... The tension that we feel between this world that's coming that's going to be amazing and the nations are going to come and learn the law in Jerusalem and worship the Lord, but then it's God's own people who continue in idolatry and injustice and oppression and rightly fall under God's just judgment. If they're a land of bloodshed, idolatry, oppression, they're regarding man rather than the Lord. Well, this can't be it. How, how do those things work side by side? How will it happen? And Isaiah 6 provides the beginning of the answer to that 
question. So we spent some time last week considering those first five chapters. And so if you weren't able to be here or haven't been able to watch or listen to it since then, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, There's a lot. This is such a rich book. And so Isaiah 1 to 5 has some of those kind of difficult parts where it's like, what is going on? How does this go with that? And we took a quick walk through Isaiah 5 to see the flow, see the sequence, to, to feel what I think the Lord wants us to feel as we come to a text like Isaiah 6, that it's not just, well, I should write a chapter on how high and lifted up I am. I'll do it in Isaiah 6. It's the answer to the real problems that were raised in Isaiah 1 through 5. But even through the judgment that they so richly deserve, even in those first five chapters, we're told there will be survivors. The ones who remain will be called holy. That the Lord will be the one who washes away the filth and cleanses the bloodstains of Jerusalem and gives them his own peace and presence and protection. It's like, that sounds like a world we want. (laughs) That sounds like a place we want to be. And that's what was being held out to them. But they could never attain it because they kept rebelling and kept disobeying. And so for Judah and Jerusalem here, the Lord would send his judgment on them and they would go into exile. But there's a promise before Isaiah 6 and in Isaiah 6 that there will be a remnant. And so Isaiah 6 is the answer to 1 through 5. We come to the text and we see that this is the place where God's people They need a true king who will rule in righteousness because they're out of control and trying to make anyone who even has a coat into their leader. They need the true king who will rule in righteousness. They need forgiveness for for their sins because they just keep on doing it. And so Isaiah recounts his own call and commission where Isaiah sees the true king, is crushed, realizes his own sin and how he could never stand in God's presence is cleansed and commissioned. So we considered first the true king. We drew the contrast with Uzziah, who had done something he ought not to do, and the Lord gave him leprosy in response to that, and his pride and his arrogance seeking to offer sacrifices that are not for the kings to offer. They're for the priests. And so Uzziah, who had been A prosperous king, while he trusted the Lord, who then grew proud, died alone, outside the camp, unable to worship with God's people. In many ways considered not even one of God's people. And so in the year that this king died, the true king shows himself to his servant, to Isaiah. And we saw that this true king is high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. The seraphs sing his praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That holiness is his separateness from sin, but also his separateness from us. That he is so high above us. And Isaiah realizes this in seeing the king. And he says, woe is me. The sins aren't just out there. It's not woe to you and you and you and you. When we see the king, 
Woe is me. He is crushed. Our sinfulness doesn't really come into view, not real clear view, until we see God in his holiness. Because when we see the king for who he really is, we see ourselves as we really are. So he's crushed, but in God's grace, Isaiah is not left there. That's what he deserves. We all deserve to be crushed for our sin and to be punished forever, separated from God, not considered his people. But we saw next that he was cleansed. He wasn't only crushed in the presence of the Lord, he was cleansed. We saw it was a gracious cleansing. It was undeserved. He deserves God's judgment and instead gets cleansing. But it was also gracious in that it came from completely outside him. There was nothing that he could do, not only to earn it, but there's nothing he could do to accomplish it. He's there just realizing, I can't get where I need to go from here. I am lost. I am ruined. I am wrecked. And it's at the Lord's initiative. The seraph comes to him, bringing the tongue, bringing the coal with the tongue from off the altar. He says, you are cleansed. Isaiah couldn't do it. He doesn't come up with the solution, doesn't ask for it. The Lord does it for him. And it happened through the sacrifice of another. That coal that's on the altar. If we're in the temple, which is where Isaiah says that we are. That altar is where the sacrifice had been made for Sins. We're not used to fire and coals as like cleansing agents in the Old Testament, and they're not usually used that way. But this coal is brought from the altar where the sacrifice, the atonement for sin is made. And then he is commissioned, and that's what we're looking at today. This one who was crushed as he saw the true king, then cleansed by grace. That's not the end of his story. And that's not the end of our story. The Lord has saved us not just so that we go, whew, that's nice. I don't have to go to hell. And I can just keep doing whatever I want because now I know that I'm saved forever. That kind of picture of salvation is not a picture that's anywhere in your Bible. The Lord saves us to be his people, to be with him, to live with him, to live for him. And so Isaiah is not just crushed and cleansed, he is commissioned as God's emissary, as God's ambassador to Judah and Jerusalem and ultimately to the nations. And so let's look back at verse 8. And I heard, this is Isaiah now, just after hearing the words that this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for, and I heard the voice of the Lord, the King, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. 
What grace this is. Isaiah, who just a moment ago says, I'm wrecked, I'm ruined, I'm lost because I've seen the king. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And moments later, having been cleansed, when the Lord says, who will go? It's like, I'm here. Send me. The former man of unclean lips will go with your message. The one who was wrecked will go with the message of salvation. Those who have been crushed by the realization of their sin in the face of a holy God and who have been cleansed by grace are ready to be sent out on behalf of the true King. So as we see this commission in response to the Lord's question, Isaiah is ready because of how God has worked in his life. He has saved him. He has changed him. And he's calling him to live for him. And this is often where considerations of Isaiah 6 stop, especially in sermons. It works really well. And we could have just tied a nice little bow on the end of last week and done something entirely different this week if that's where we intended to stop. Because we're so close. It's like, there he is. He's commissioned. We all need to be ready to live for the Lord. And it's like, all right, let's do it. And then we have verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people. And you're like, all right, what's the good news? What's going to happen through my great ministry? Isaiah must be thinking this. It's like, man, I've been crushed. I'm cleansed. Now I'm being sent on behalf of the true king. I am ready. But it is not easy. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. And he's probably thinking, I do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Lord, can, can I have a different mission? One that lines up with kind of where I thought things we're going to go. And it's why we can't end the story with Isaiah 6, 8. And be like, okay, here am I, send me. Yeah, let's, and just like, let's go out for Jesus. Let's do it. Isaiah was given a difficult commission. Go to a people who won't listen. And your ministry will actually be part of their hardening. Their eyes and their ears will be closed. When we say, here I am, send me, Lord, this is not what we're thinking about. It's not what I was thinking about years ago when it's like, okay, I think the Lord is calling me to do some sort of ministry. You know, you're more like thinking like it's going to be good, right? It's going to go well. We have visions of how great it will be. Maybe even how great other people will think we are, which means we need to go back to step one. Going out for the Lord isn't like that, right? It's not easy, which makes sense when we step back and remember that we're following Jesus. Was his ministry (laughs) one of triumph after triumph and joy after joy all the way to glory? No, the heart of his ministry was going to the cross for you and for me. The heart of his ministry was 
rejection by the people who should have accepted him. Boy, that feels like what's going on in these verses. This was Jesus' ministry, and he told his disciples, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And so how foolish are we when we think, well, if I'm just faithful, if I just live the way I should, everyone will see it and be like, can you tell me about this Jesus who's obviously your Savior, but I need to know something still, so tell me please? I don't know about you, I've never had a conversation like that. And more and more in our culture today, as it seeks to conform us to its own image, and we don't, it won't be positive attention that we get for following Jesus. That's never a license for us to be unkind or mean or a jerk to people. <laughs> That's a way we can show we're following Jesus. <laughs> We want to be ready like Isaiah was. We want to say, here I am, send me. We have the benefit of having some idea of the commission before we sign up. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Following Jesus. And this isn't just for people who are in full-time ministry. This isn't just for people who are serving as pastors or in other ministry official roles. Every one of us has been given the Great Commission by Jesus himself. And we should not expect it to be easy, and we should still volunteer because he is worthy. Another aspect of Isaiah's commissioning that we'll consider here is that it was a hardening, right? It's like that's what we're seeing. And this commission seems particularly Strange, right? It's a ministry of hardening, but something for us to understand is it was not a ministry of obscurity or a ministry of lack of clarity on Isaiah's part. Okay? The hardening wasn't because Isaiah spoke in riddles. It wasn't because they had no idea what Isaiah was saying. It's not that Isaiah was unclear. It's that there was a darkness a blindness over them. It's not, Isaiah, go out and be as unclear as you can so that they won't understand. No, he actually speaks with great clarity throughout the prophecies, the visions of this book. In fact, perhaps out of all the Old Testament, Isaiah may be the clearest about the Messiah and about what the Messiah will accomplish through his suffering. Even though the disciples didn't get it, the religious leaders in Jesus' day didn't get it, Isaiah's where they would point to say the Messiah had to suffer. It's where his suffering is the clearest. It's where his sacrificial death is the clearest. It's where on the heels of that sacrificial death, somehow he's alive again. So even though there's not a statement of resurrection, it's at least implied in Isaiah 53. Isaiah is maybe the clearest about the mission that the Messiah will accomplish to save his people and what it will look like in the end. So he's not unclear, but the people still won't understand. The ministry will be one of hardening. 
And we saw as we finished out Acts several weeks ago that Paul quoted these exact words from Isaiah 6 when he is speaking to the Jews in Rome and he's telling them and trying to persuade them about Jesus from the Old Testament. And they don't listen and he says, Isaiah was right to say this about you. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. They keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. He quotes these exact verses and saying they were fulfilled. They were fulfilled in some ways in Jesus' ministry. They were fulfilled through the apostles' ministry. So as for Isaiah's own day, they didn't listen to him. It was for Paul's day. And there's a way in which that blindness and deafness continues for many Jews down to this very day. There's a lot of blindness and deafness in Isaiah. It's not just here. You'll see it as you go through reading. And his ministry was one of hardening. So well, how, how does that work? Well, I think we have even a way to understand how this works. When someone tells you something, and you're like, nah, I don't like that. And then they tell you again. You're like, I don't like that. And then they tell you again. You're like, really don't like that. And now you're starting to like, think of other words you want to say that you really shouldn't. Like, how do I, right? How do I say this so you will stop, right? Are each of my responses getting softer and more receptive and ready to listen? No, they're getting harder and harder and harder. It's not because Isaiah wasn't speaking the truth. It's not because the message wasn't clear. And perhaps you've seen this as you've tried to share the gospel with people. You share with them, they're like, don't like that. I don't want that. Don't need that. Don't want anything to do with that. And a little later on, you're like, oh, but can you see? <laughs> can you see? Don't want it. Need to stop. And sometimes even our proclamation today is a ministry of hardening. It's why Paul could say that the message that we proclaim, this, the exact same message, can be the aroma of death for some and the aroma of life for those who will believe. It's not that Paul had one message for the people that he was sure weren't going to believe and another one for the ones who were ready. His same message would be met, as we saw throughout Acts, right? Some would believe and some would reject. And some of those would reject him and respond quite violently. And so there are some ways we still face blindness and deafness as we go out. But that's not a reason to stop because some will believe. Our ministry will be a ministry of hardening for some, and we don't control that. But our ministry will be a ministry of life for some others. Because even as we have here, there is a promise of a remnant. Now here... We read up through verse 10. Verse 11 has Isaiah's response. Then I said, 
How long, O Lord? Right? It's like, here's my commission. How long is it going to be this way? (laughs) How long will my ministry be? How long will this just be a ministry of hardening? How long will they not listen? And the Lord replies, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And this is a reference to the eventual fall of Jerusalem and God's people going into exile. It happened in three stages over 605 and 597 and 586 where finally it was burned. Even what had been left, the few people who were left who rebelled, they're removed, many of them killed, and the city is burned to the ground. And not one stone is left on top of another in the temple that had been so glorious. That's how long. Until judgment comes. Until exile And then in verse 13, that last sentence, the holy seed is its stump. You might be like, oh, that's the stump that got burned. But this is the beginning of a new thing. The remnant that would remain, that would grow up and actually become a people from all nations. Because there's a lot of blindness and deafness in Isaiah like we see here. And you'll see it as you read through. But you'll also see in Isaiah references to eyes and ears being opened to see and to hear. So Isaiah, who faced so much opposition and whose ministry was primarily hardening, His message became good news to the remnant and has become good news to us, to millions and millions who believe in Jesus. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, again, the day of the Lord, in that great day in the future, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 32, 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. How encouraging must these verses have been for Isaiah to write, right? He never forgot his commission, I'm sure. Especially because that's what he kept experiencing is the rejection and hardening of God's people And he's able to write, the ears will pay attention. The eyes will be opened. Because a holy remnant will remain. Even with all the judgment that is so richly deserved because of what we saw in Isaiah 1 through 5. The call of Isaiah shows an ultimate hope of salvation. Being one of God's true people was not about being born a Jew. And even today, being one of God's true people is not about who your parents are or what your last name is, what your grandfather did. It's about trusting in the Lord. And that has always been the case. There was always an Israel within Israel who were the holy remnant. 
And in that last sentence, I want to focus on the one word seed. The holy seed is its stump. If you have the ESV, you see a seven superscript there after the word seed. Do you see it? If you have other translations, you might see a different number, right? And then you go down, for me, it's at the bottom of mine. You go down to seven and it says, or offspring. So this is a word that is used that could mean either one of these things. And we think about offspring, we think of seed all the way back to in the garden or as they're being cast out of the garden, And the woman's seed, the woman's offspring, the one who will come. Even though there's judgment, there's a stump that remains, there's hope for new growth on the other side of the burning, and the holy seed, or offspring, is the stump. The ultimate king, and that's who Isaiah's seeing in this chapter, right? And that's who he's being sent out to represent the ultimate king whom Isaiah calls in another place the root of Jesse, a reference to David's dad, is a shoot that comes from the stump and provides salvation. Here's that Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah 11.10, later in that same vision. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so there's a way in which this holy seed refers to one seed, as Paul will say later on, one person, one specific offspring, Jesus, who is the new Adam, who succeeds in all the places that Adam failed and all the ways that Israel failed. Jesus succeeds. He is the true Adam, the true Israel, who is fully obedient to his father, does all his father's will, including going to the cross for sinners like you and like me. He will stand. He will be the one everyone looks to and that all the nations come to for salvation and his resting place shall be glorious. But Isaiah also uses this word that could be seed or offspring to speak of offspring, like thinking about it in the plural, children, in reference to that remnant that will ultimately come from all nations to worship the Lord. And he actually uses the word this way way more in Isaiah than the other. Isaiah 43, 5-7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What's he saying here? Bring my offspring, my sons and daughters. Call them from the ends of the earth. And that's what's happening right now. (laughs) He's calling his people, that he's called by his name, that he's formed for his glory from every tribe, from every people, from every nation and tongue. And he's promised to pour out his spirit on his 
offspring. Isaiah 44, 3 through 5. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And isn't this the gift that we have? We get to say that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful creator and our savior, Jesus Christ. Never get over that gift. We are God's children who inherit everything in Christ. Do you realize that? Are we so caught up in what's happening later today or what we've got to do? Or so overcome with the sin that we committed this week that surely means God cannot accept us ever for real. But I guess I'll go to church again this Sunday. We are his children now. And as John would later write, it, doesn't yet, it hasn't yet appeared what we will be, but we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We are his offspring because Jesus gave his own life for us. The ultimate seed gave his life, died and was buried so that out of him we could be born and have life. Isaiah 53, very famous chapter, the end of it. The last few verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We are sons and daughters of God because Jesus died and rose again for us. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so ultimately when we consider What is the Holy Seed? I need to make sure I can answer this question. We don't have to choose between the two. Jesus is the ultimate seed. We wouldn't be God's children without the work of Jesus, the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, the ultimate son of David who will rule in righteousness, justice, and peace forever. And that good news has come to us who now can take the Lord's name for us ourselves and be called by his name. And then that good news goes out through God's people who, like Isaiah, have been crushed, humbled to the dust in the presence of the king, but not left there, cleansed and commissioned. And obviously our situation is different than Isaiah's day. Our commission's a better one than his. 
Jesus the Messiah has come. He indeed lived that perfect life, died a bloody sacrificial death on the cross, rose in victory, ascended to the Father, and poured out the Holy Spirit. Even now we are waiting for him to come again and for those new heavens and new earth. But while we wait, he has given us a commission. He's promised his presence with us to the end of the age as we go in his name. So when we see the true king in his glory, we're crushed, we're cleansed, and commissioned. Isaiah's vision shows us God's absolute holiness, our sinfulness and culpability before him, but the cleansing we receive by grace and commissioned to live as his people, even when nothing turns out the way we think or hope that it should. We have a great commission as those who are witnesses to what God has done through Jesus to go out in his name, declaring his glory among the nations. And by his grace, through our own witness, the Lord will call more people his children. He will call people to faith and repentance through us. And so by his grace, would we live as his people and would we proclaim the good news of salvation and forgiveness of sins through his name? By his grace, we are part of that remnant that takes the good news of his victory to the nations. Not everyone will listen, of course. If you've tried to tell anyone about Jesus ever, you know that. But through our telling of the good news, some will hear. Some will have their eyes and ears opened. They will see Jesus and they will be humbled to the dust before him. Then be lifted up on their feet, having been cleansed by his blood. And join us in this commission. And one day... Isaiah 33, 5 through 6 will be true for everyone who hopes in him. And even now we can feel the good effects of this. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is is Zion's treasure. So as we close, have your eyes been opened to see the glory of the Lord, to see the Holy One high and lifted up? Have you been humbled to the dust before him? Or are you being hardened as you hear and say, eh, eh, and reject the clear message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Because in his holy presence, when we see him face to face, all defenses, all pretenses are dropped. Right? All the ways that our kids argue with one another and then to us about how they're right and the other one's wrong. Now, I know none of you guys who are in here today would do that, 
And adults, we do it too. We just don't have parents to do it to anymore, right? So we do it to each other. We do it with our friends. It's like, see, that's why I was exactly right. And I definitely didn't do anything wrong. But when we see the king, those things won't work anymore. We won't even try. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve woe, both now and forever. But Jesus came to this earth, lived as the perfect God-man, died a sacrificial, atoning death on the cross in our place, taking all the punishment we deserve. So if you're seeing him and going, oh no, today can be the day where you also go, oh yes, I believe in him. I receive his cleansing by grace. And as I'm helped by the Spirit, I'm ready to live for him. Anyone can get in on this. The good news of Jesus' victory is for everyone from every nation who calls on him. And so we look forward to the day when, as Isaiah wrote in Isaiah eleven nine, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. By God's grace, that day is really coming because of Jesus. And by his grace, we're part of it. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but you sent your son at just the right time to do something about it, not just something in general, but exactly what we needed. Would you help us as we walk through this week to be reminded that we live before you, who made us, who is over all, and who in your mercy has saved us. And in living before you, would we live for you? by the power of your spirit and for the glory of Jesus' name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.